Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's an hour before sunset on the 28th of September, 1830. And in the Abercrombie Ranges, About 45 miles south of Bathurst, in the central west region of New South Wales, a band of hunted men think they've found safety. Ralph Entwistle, absconded convict, and a dozen or so followers who, like him, are also escapees, have taken refuge at Grove Creek Falls. The dense forest, the rough terrain of gorges and ridges around the river, and the encroaching darkness. This is nature's haven against the posse that by now has surely been sent out to bring them to justice. Ralph Entwistle and his men aren't just wanted for fleeing their masters. In the colony of New South Wales, 30 years after white settlement, posses aren't usually sent out for absconded convicts. Escapees number in the hundreds, if not thousands, and the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser newspaper regularly has an entire column given over to describing the latest missing men and women. Ralph Entwistle and his confederates are wanted for much more than just running away. They're wanted for murder and feared for inciting other convicts to join their rebellion. This band of men, they're now seen as a potential threat to the stability of the colonial government. Ralph Entwistle, officially known as Convict 27-2626, is 26 years old and cuts a commanding figure. Tall for his time, standing nearly 5'9", he has grey eyes in a ruddy, freckled face beneath a head of sandy hair. 
But what's really striking about him now as the shadows lengthen over Grove Creek Falls is that Ralph Entwistle has threaded ribbons into his hat to give himself makeshift military decorations. And his men do treat him like a battlefield commander. They've pledged to fight to the last. They'd rather die than return to slavery. And for the moment, they are free, able to rest easy knowing they're well-provisioned, well-armed and well-concealed in this beautiful spot. Suddenly, from the bush above, a cacophony. A heavy rock tumbling, crashing, dislodged by someone. Ralph Entwistle and his men have been found. They run for cover and fire at figures they glimpse in the bush around them. The air sizzles with lead balls and shot. The hills echo with the crack of pistols, muskets and shotguns. In the heat of this battle, Ralph Entwistle may be struck afresh by the absurdity of his predicament. Here he is, fighting for his life. All because less than a year ago, on a hot day, he went for a naked swim. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Our white colonial history is richly embroidered with romantic stories of good-hearted outlaws pushed to violence by corrupt and brutal colonial police. In some cases, it's even claimed they acted not out of self-interest, but for the greater good, as Robin Hood-style figures whose goal was rebellion against unjust authority. Yet while numerous bushrangers have been celebrated this way, the anti-hero who actually may be deserving of this status has been all but forgotten. Unlike many of our mythical bushrangers, Ralph Entwistle's story in Australia didn't start with him as an innocent young colonial pushed to crime. In fact, it was the opposite. He was a convicted criminal transported to Australia who was trying to earn his freedom under a system where everything he'd worked for could be snatched away on a sadistic whim. Ralph Entwistle was born in 1804 in Bolton, a mill town near Manchester in England. In his early adolescence, he was apprenticed to a bricklayer, likely for a period of seven years. Given the modest skill involved in the trade, this job was little more than lowly paid indentured servitude. In 1826, at the age of 22, Ralph Entwistle and a mate broke into a house and stole some clothes. Chances are, they hoped to sell them. Instead, they were caught. Though they'd allegedly committed the crime together, Ralph's mate was found not guilty for lack of evidence. Ralph wasn't so lucky and he was convicted. And luck really wasn't on his side when it came to sentencing. Ralph Entwistle was to be transported for life to the penal colony of New South Wales. Like his fellow convicts, he'd await this journey on one of the rotting decommissioned ships known as hulks that were anchored in British ports. These privately run prison ships were hell on water. By day, ill-nourished and often diseased convicts did hard and dangerous dock and river work. By night, they lived in dark, cramped, cold and wet conditions in which they brutalised each other and were brutalised by guards. Their only hope was their eventual transportation to an unknown land on the other side of the world. But these journeys were almost as perilous, with convicts again at risk of disease, brutalisation and shipwreck. After spending four months on a hulk, 
Ralph Entwistle was assigned to the convict ship John, which sailed on the 22nd of July, 1827, carrying 188 convicts. The John spent four months at sea, arriving in Sydney on the 25th of November. After initially reporting multiple deaths from typhus on the voyage, the Sydney Gazette issued a correction, revising that number to one. This, the paper said, was remarkable, given that the other fatality during the voyage was the ship's doctor, who, in mid-October, had gone mad, thrown himself overboard and drowned, leaving the ship with no medical supervision for the next six weeks. Ralph Entwistle had gotten lucky. Back then, this sort of voyage was considered a success. Arriving in Sydney, he was assigned to John Lipscomb, a prosperous farmer with a property near Bathurst. Now Ralph Entwistle realised he was about to face another daunting journey. Bathurst was 140 miles away, across the rugged Blue Mountains, which had only been crossed by white men some 15 years earlier. Remote though Bathurst was, the wheat grown and the sheep raised on the plains of this central west region were increasingly vital to the colony's growth and prosperity. While it was to be a tough journey, Ralph Entwistle had again struck it lucky. Landowners like John Lipscomb depended on the convict labourers assigned to them and, generally speaking, treated them better than other masters whose livelihoods weren't so tied to the well-being of their servants. Journeying to Bathurst, Ralph would have seen the enormity of his new home. The bush, ridges and valleys stretching forbiddingly in all directions. Step into this landscape and it'd swallow you up. Try to escape and you'd likely starve, die of thirst, fall from one of the many precipices, succumb to the poison of a deadly snake or perhaps be speared by Aborigines. Arriving in Bathurst wasn't to see anything like the bustling regional city of the 21st century. Back then, it was a small cluster of huts around government buildings arranged on the east side of the Macquarie River. John Lipscomb's property was 12 miles southwest of this hard scrabble village. There, again, Ralph Entwistle would have been struck by the vastness of the plains and the harshness of the conditions. Summer, as he was now experiencing, brought blazing heat. As 1828 progressed, he would have felt a cold more like that of home and perhaps even a nostalgic dusting of snow. But compared with the prison hulk or the abysmal conditions at sea, Ralph Entwistle's new life was good. John Lipscomb, who also served numerous official functions in Bathurst, including police clerk, registrar and coroner, seemed to be a fair master. Ralph Entwistle could even see a future for himself. Incentive came in the form of a ticket of leave. This was a sort of parole, including the freedom to work, marry and own land, which was granted to convicts who'd proved themselves with their good behaviour. While the rule for lifers like Ralph Entwistle was that he'd have to serve 12 to 14 years before he was eligible for a ticket of leave, the reality in the Bathurst region appeared to be very different, or at least this is what he was led to believe. The story goes that by September 1829, Ralph Entwistle had already earned his ticket of leave, or was under the impression that one was about to be granted to him. In his mind, he was soon to be free 
to pursue the goals of every decent single man in the colony, find a wife and farm some land. Bathurst's fortunes were also looking brighter. The drought had broken and the first sheep shearing of the season had gone ahead. John Lipscomb asked Ralph Entwistle if he would do one last job for him. He wanted him and another convict to take a bullock dray loaded with wool bales over the Blue Mountains to Sydney. There, they would sell the produce, buy supplies for the station and make their return trip. Ralph Entwistle apparently had the right to say no to this job, but it's thought he agreed as a measure of thanks to the master who'd treated him so well and who'd helped him get his ticket of leave so early. The journey wouldn't be an easy one. It was a 280-mile return trip, much of it on dusty, rocky or muddy tracks over the mountains. There, a bullock dray could easily go out of control and over a cliff. They could be bailed up by bushrangers. Any one of dozens of things might go wrong. Yet, fulfilling this mission was part of Ralph Entwistle proving himself worthy of freedom and worthy of a place in society. Before he and his sidekick left, John Lipscomb brought a bottle to toast them and wished them good health and Godspeed. Ralph Entwistle and his partner set out in early November. On the track east, they were joined by another pair of convicts taking a bullock dray loaded with wool bales to Sydney for their master. As the sun sank behind them on this first hot afternoon, Ralph Entwistle and the other men reached the Macquarie River. The water was cool and inviting and the men decided to have a swim before they made camp and had their supper. They stripped off and plunged in. As they splashed about enjoying their freedom, they heard voices and the clutter of hooves and the creak of carriage wheels. Then, about a hundred yards away, at a little river crossing, they saw Lieutenant General Governor Sir Ralph Darling's convoy, escorted by uniformed soldiers, making its way to Bathurst. The naked men ducked and dived and hid themselves as best they could in the reeds and shadows of trees on the riverbank. Fortunately, the governor, who was the colony's ruler and the representative of His Majesty King George IV, appeared to pass by without him or his soldiers spotting Ralph Entwistle and his friends. Yet a third party had also converged on that very spot at that very moment. This, unfortunately, was Thomas Evenden, Bathurst's police magistrate, who had ridden out to greet the governor. And he had spotted the naked swimmers. Yet even this man of fearful reputation appeared untroubled by their presence, concentrating instead on greeting His Excellency and escorting him along the road to Bathurst. Relieved, Ralph Entwistle and his men got out of the water, put on their clothes, made camp and set about making themselves supper. But it wasn't long before constables arrived from Bathurst. Sent by Thomas Evenden, they put Ralph Entwistle and his three companions under arrest. The men had to be bewildered. They'd committed no crime and given no offence. Yet they were taken to Bathurst's tiny jail, where men were piled in on each other in squalid darkness, like a miniature version of the prison hulks and transport ships. It's not known whether the men pleaded their innocence when brought before Thomas Evenden. If they did, it may only have angered him further. Thomas Evenden sentenced each man to 50 lashes. 
These days, it's hard to fathom such a barbaric punishment, let alone when administered so arbitrarily and upon men objectively innocent of any crime. Ralph Entwistle, who had never before been flogged, was tied to a triangular frame with his hands so high above his head that his feet only just reached the ground. This was so the skin on his bare back was taut, all the better to receive the lashes. The flogging was done with a cat of nine tails. Lashes were administered at about 12 second intervals and with such exhausting ferocity that often a second flogger had to take over to inflict the final 25 lashes of a 50 lash punishment. By the fifth lash, the victim's blood was usually flowing so freely it'd soon fill his shoes. Sometimes, by the 50th lash, the victim's spine was visible through flesh so lacerated it was said to resemble ox liver. Ralph Entwistle would have tried to suffer in silence because convict etiquette was to try to tough it out. But it's difficult to believe he didn't scream When a flogging was finished, medical care comprised brine thrown over the wounds. It was an agonising disinfectant. There were no antibiotics and some men died of infection. But the majority survived, scarred and disfigured both physically and mentally. Ralph Entwistle might have borne his flogging if that had been his only punishment. But Bathurst Police Magistrate Thomas Evenden did more than have his wounds splashed with brine. He rubbed figurative salt into his victim's psychic wounds by also cancelling his ticket of leave. Ralph Entwistle had been convicted of burglary but had been paying the price and trying to make amends in his new home. He'd thought freedom had been within his grasp. Now that hope was snuffed out. He wouldn't farm or raise a family. He would toil endlessly for other men, subject to the brutal whims of officials like Thomas Evenden. Though bleeding and reeling from his flogging, Ralph Entwistle would have been expected to return to work almost immediately. In his self-published 2010 book, Ten Dead Men, A Speculative History of the Ribbon Gang, Bathurst architect Henry Bialois argues that Thomas Evenden's vindictive punishment was to save his own skin. His theory is that if Ralph Entwistle had been allowed to continue his plodding bullet journey over the Blue Mountains, he would eventually have been overtaken by Governor Ralph Darling's convoy returning to Sydney. His Excellency was a stickler for the regulations. What, he might have wanted to know, was a lifer doing with a ticket of leave so early in his sentence. That would have reflected badly on Thomas Evenden, who owed his position to the governor. According to Henry Bialois, Ralph Entwistle, even though he'd just been flogged, was still expected to make the bullock journey to Sydney. It's hard to grasp the suffering he and the other three men went through. With nothing but their pain, the flies, and the ever-present threat of death or disaster on the road, Ralph Entwistle and his comrades would have had much time to discuss Thomas Evenden, 
the man who'd made their lives hell. Returning to Bathurst, Ralph Entwistle had no choice but to return to work for John Lipscomb. Lipscomb had previously been good to him, but there was no getting around the fact that this man was one of Bathurst's officials. He'd been right there, alongside Thomas Evenden and the rest of the Western Plains elite, to greet Governor Darling. Had he even tried to intercede on Ralph Entwistle's behalf? If he had, it hadn't done any good. Ralph Entwistle no longer felt loyalty to his master. Writing at convictrecords.com.au, John Merriman, Blue Mountain's local studies librarian, suggests that it might not have been the river incident, but a grievance with a local landowner over supplies of food and clothing that led to what happened next. Given the degrees to which John Lipscomb and Thomas Evenden were targeted, it seems entirely possible or even likely that both played a part. On the 23rd of September, 1830, Ralph Entwistle and four other men absconded from John Lipscomb's property. That was the extent of his vengeance on his former master, removing himself and other valuable servants from the workforce. An inconvenience, yes, but they were also easily replaceable. Ralph Entwistle and his men went east to another property, where they enlisted more convicts to their cause and stole all the firearms they could get their hands on. The gang repeated this process at several other farms, strengthening their numbers to as many as 80 men as they collected horses, food and spirits. Now they approached their real target, the property owned by Thomas Evenden. The hated police magistrate was about to pay for what he'd done. Ralph Entwistle called him out, but Thomas Evenden wasn't there. So Ralph Entwistle ordered all of the convict servants to join his gang, which they did. All except John Greenwood, who worked as Thomas Evenden's overseer. He came out from his hut and cockily refused to join the gang. Ralph Entwistle said he'd shoot him if he didn't submit. Tearing open his shirt to bare his chest, John Greenwood taunted Ralph Entwistle by saying he would not be game enough to shoot. The rebel leader and another man fired simultaneously, their bullets hitting Greenwood in the chest. Oh Lord, the overseer cried as he stumbled back and tried to get away. Another convict shot him in the back, killing him. As Thomas Evenden's overseer, he'd reportedly been hated by other convicts who reckoned him a police informer. Some men present reckoned he'd gotten what he deserved. But there was no getting around that Ralph Entwistle and two of his most trusted comrades had just committed cold-blooded murder. For this trio, there was no going back. If they were captured, they would hang. Anyone else who stayed with them now also risked the same fate. For the rest of that day, the gang continued plundering properties on King's Plain. During one of these raids, a man escaped unseen and made for Bathurst to alert the authorities. Ralph Entwistle might have had 80 or so men under his command, 
but he was also smart enough to know that many had joined out of fear they might be killed if they refused. That first night, to preserve order and protect against treachery, he ordered rank-and-file members to be locked in a woolshed. It was a move that would have increased their fear while decreasing their morale. The next day, the gang resumed its plunder of the countryside. During these raids, Ralph Entwistle insisted that no one be hurt as his men helped themselves to more supplies and horses and enlisted yet more convicts to the cause. But he knew most of these followers couldn't be relied upon when the inevitable showdown with the authorities came. Ralph Entwistle now offered freedom to anyone who wasn't prepared to stay with him to the end. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. Most of the gang at this point dispersed, leaving Ralph Entwistle with a dozen or so comrades who vowed to fight to the death. This reduced gang continued their polite plunder of properties. Yet, even as the actual rebel numbers dwindled, in Bathurst, the gang's size was inflated with one report insisting there were 134 members, while other rumours said there were 500 outlaws out there on the prowl. What was very concerning were the reports of other convict uprisings in nearby areas, leading to serious concern that law and order across the entire Central West might be under threat. On Monday, the 27th of September, magistrates and civilians met at the Bathurst Courthouse to decide what to do about the gang. Although Thomas Evenden had been praised for previously capturing bushrangers in admittedly dubious circumstances and that it had been his servant who had been murdered, he mysteriously didn't take a part in forming up a posse. Indeed, he wouldn't be actively involved in the hunt at all. Instead, a dozen men volunteered to be led by William Sutter, the young son of revered Australian pioneer George Sutter, with his brother Charles as his second in charge. As they prepared themselves for the hunt, a rider arrived with fresh news. Thomas Arkell's farm had just been robbed by Ralph Entwistle and his gang. William Sutter's posse rode there, arriving the next morning 
but then lost the trail. His father, George Sutter, soon after wrote a vivid letter about the hunt, which was published in the Sydney Gazette. Fortunately, he wrote of the posse, they met two natives who knew him and on whom he prevailed to go with them as guides to track the banditti, and they soon came upon their tracks and kept them till they saw the bushrangers encamped in a rocky glen. As William Sutter positioned his men to attack, one of them dislodged that rock and the battle was on. Above the cacophony, Ralph Entwistle was heard calmly giving orders and directing fire. He believed the shadowy leader of the posse was none other than Thomas Evenden, and he and his men shouted death warrants as they shot at him. They were actually firing at William Sutter, and they nearly got him. His father wrote, one ball passed through his hair on the side of his face. When not coming within a literal whisker of being killed, William Sutter got glimpses of Ralph Entwistle with his hat decorated with ribbons, and his description would soon after lead to the gang being dubbed the Ribbon Boys. 300 shots were fired in a battle that lasted about an hour. But with pistols, muskets, shotguns and fowling pieces being inaccurate weapons, and the irregular terrain and dwindling light not helping, it wasn't, relatively speaking, a particularly brutal encounter. Two gang members were wounded, but managed to fight on. As darkness settled, the posse was in trouble because they were out of ammunition. William Sutter might have botched the initial raid, but he now redeemed himself with bold tactics. Even though their weapons were empty, he and a handful of his men charged, their bravado scattering the rebels. This gave the posse time to retreat, which they did hastily. The Ribbon Boys gave chase, Ralph Entwistle ordering his men to take their time, take careful aim and kill the man he still believed to be Thomas Evenden. But the posse reached the spot where they'd left their horses with the Aboriginal trackers and they got away safely. Ralph Entwistle and his rebels had decisively won the first round. Now they took as their hiding place the Abercrombie Caves. As a storm set in, William Sutter and his men returned to Thomas Arkell's property. There they corralled their horses, resupplied and sent word to Major Donald McPherson, who was in charge of law and order in the region, requesting reinforcements. When William Sutter's party awoke, they found all their horses were gone. It was thought a gang member or sympathiser had snuck in during the night, cut them loose and driven them into the bush. Now a second posse arrived, commanded by a Lieutenant J. Brown, and he and his men followed the bushranger's trail to a spot in the Karawa Range near the Abercrombie Caves. Here they encountered Ralph Entwistle and the Ribbon Boys. This was a far shorter but far bloodier firefight. Ralph Entwistle and his men had chosen a strong defensive position. They poured fire on the police. As George Sutter wrote in his letter, two of Lieutenant Brown's men were shot and five horses lost, 
Lieutenant Brown did all that a brave officer could do to save the lives of his men, even carried off two on the back of his own horse. In 10 minutes, the whole of his party might have been shot. The banditti had taken their ground so well. They have abundance of ammunition, arms and horses. Their number is supposed to be, at this time, from 14 to 20. With Lieutenant Brown and his wounded men retreating to Bathurst, the Ribbon Boys had scored another decisive victory. At least one of the wounded troopers later died of his injuries. In Sydney, in early October, Governor Ralph Darling ordered men of the 39th Regiment to march for Bathurst. If the police couldn't put down the convict rebellion, then his red-coated soldiers would. Through early October, the Ribbon Boys raided properties in the southwest towards Cowra. It was near Baroa that mounted police who'd ridden from Goulburn under the command of a Lieutenant McAllister caught up with the gang. Another fierce gun battle ensued. Several of the mounted police were wounded and so were three of the rebels. Lieutenant McAllister took a bullet in the left wrist and dropped. That's number one, boys, shouted Ralph Entwistle. Take him steady. Lieutenant McAllister might have been down, but he wasn't out. Resting his gun on his shattered arm, he fired and hit Ralph Entwistle, inflicting a minor wound. That makes number two, McAllister called. It was a gutsy moment, but he and his troopers were again out of ammunition. But McAllister and his men had something to show for the battle capturing the three wounded rebels who they took to the southern highlands town of Bongbong. There, the wounded troopers and the wounded convicts received medical attention. It was now that the men of the 39th Regiment, under the command of Captain Walpole, arrived to reinforce Lieutenant McAllister. They were joined by other men from previous posses until their number reached as many as 200. This massive force marched on the rebels' position on the 13th of October. As hard as they had fought, Ralph Entwistle now saw that the Ribbon Boys' predicament was hopeless. Further resistance was useless. Ralph Entwistle and the six men who remained in the rebel redoubt surrendered on the 14th of October, 1830. The ten core members of the gang including the three who'd been wounded and caught, were tried in Bathurst at the first ever sitting of the Supreme Court outside of Sydney. Multiple witnesses testified in graphic detail as to the cold-blooded murder of Thomas Evenden's convict overseer, John Greenwood. Was it a fair trial? As Henry Bialois makes clear in his book, Ten Dead Men, Thomas Evenden did everything in his power to ensure the trial was held in Bathurst rather than in Sydney. He wanted to shield himself as much as possible from scrutiny. There were also serious discrepancies in evidence and the men who gave it were convicts well aware of what they were supposed to say and the consequences they might endure for contradicting their betters. That noted, the fact of the murder did appear undisputed. What was incredible was that the jury consisted of numerous men, including Lieutenant Brown, who'd been beaten and embarrassed on the battlefield 
by the Ribbon Boys. It should come as no surprise that this jury found all ten men guilty, six of murder and four of theft. They were sentenced to hang. Under the recently passed Bushranger Act, such sentences had to be carried out within two days of being passed. A big scaffold was erected in the centre of Bathurst for what was to be the town's first public execution and the largest mass hanging in the history of the colony. After a short delay because of the weekend, on Tuesday the 2nd of November, Ralph Entwistle and the other nine men received the last rites. Did Ralph Entwistle have any last words? Reports in the late 19th and early 20th century have him saying, My old mother said I would die like a brave soldier with my boots on, but I'll make a liar of her. With that, he kicked off his boots. Six men were hanged in the first batch, four in the next. In the years that followed, Thomas Evenden remained a strong authority figure in the region and various newspapers reported that he was lauded by local graziers for his good works. But not everyone loved him. In 1836, he barely survived an assassination attempt when a gunman shot at him and his wife in their horse carriage. The culprit was never identified. In terms of who had the motive, the list of his enemies was incredibly long, because Despite having to now account for who he had flogged and why and how much they suffered, this man kept enthusiastically handing out brutal punishment for the most trivial of offences. As for Ralph Entwistle and the Ribbon Boys, their story was retold occasionally in newspapers through the late 1800s and early 1900s, sometimes with old-timers passing on oral histories about encounters with Entwistle, Thomas Evenden or William Sutter. But the Bathurst Rebellion left more of a mark on the landscape. Today, the place where Ralph Entwistle and his men were hanged is known as Ribbon Gang Lane. The Bush Rangers Cave in the Abercrombie Ranges is named for them, and for some time, the hill outside Bathurst, where timber was cut for the scaffold, was known as Gallows Hill. But unlike Ned Kelly and Ben Hall and others, the Ribbon Boys haven't really made a mark on popular culture. That is, with one exception, which is how I came to the story. In 1963, Australian folk and country singer Lionel Long released an album called The Bold Bushrangers. My friend Mick Luby, co-author with Leo Kennedy of the book Black Snake, which is about Ned Kelly's victim, police constable Michael Kennedy, picked up this album at an op shop for one dollar. He played me the track called The Bathurst Rebellion and I read the liner notes which gave a brief rundown of this forgotten slice of Australian history. Though Lionel Long changed the name of the rebel leader, it's otherwise a spirited account of the uprising. I've been given permission from the rights holder Sally Johnson of Backtracks Records to play you this song, so stick around. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could show your support. Don't worry, it doesn't cost a thing and it only takes a moment. First, hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform or app you use to listen to this podcast. Second, give a review or rating. Both of these things help the show reach more people. If you'd like to know more about this and other episodes, visit ForgottenAustralia.com. There you'll also find information about my book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is out now. This podcast was written and produced by me in Katoomba on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. All right, to take us out, here's Lionel Long with The Bathurst Rebellion. Thanks for listening. Remember how young Jimmy Blair struck a blow against tyranny's pain How he led 80 men into freedom one day from their bondage on hot Bathurst plain They took their revenge against the men who had flogged them with pity as scarce as the rain Or the snow that has never been known to fall, known to fall on the hot Bathurst plain Stand to our guns, we'll fight to the death For freedom is more than life Fear not the bullet, fear not the pain Turn around and face them, laugh as you die A dead man wears no chains The cavalry turned out against us at last They charged us again and again When they were done, we had 13 men left, 13 men on the hot Bathurst plain. But the soldiers came back and with fire and with blood marked their souls with the black brand of Cain. And the convicts who lived through that September day all were hanged on the hot Bathurst plain. We'll stand to our guns, we'll fight to the death, Freedom is more than life Fear not the bullet, fear not the pain Turn round and face them, laugh as you die A dead man wears no chain Ten men were there on the gallows so tall With nothing but freedom to gain These ten men who died were the first to be prey of the hangman on hot Bathurst plain. One of the ten was young Jimmy Blair, on his lips was a smile of disdain. As the trap fell, the crowd heard his song loud and clear, loud and clear across the hot Bathurst plain. We'll stand to our guns and we'll fight to the death. Freedom is more than life Fear not the bullet Fear not the pain Turn around and face them Laugh as you die A dead man wears No chain
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.